This is Radiate, the podcast that celebrates life and shines a light on life-restoring stories of organ, tissue, and eye donors, recipients, and information you need to know about donation. Welcome back to Episode 12 of Radiate. I'm Audrey Coleman, your host. Thank you for joining us. March is National Kidney Month, the time to focus attention on kidney disease. One treatment for severe kidney disease is a kidney transplant. Today's guest, Charlene Raines, has a very personal connection to this topic. Charlene's husband was the recipient of two kidney transplants, and Charlene is here today to share her experience as a transplant recipient family member. Welcome to Radiate, Charlene. Thank we you appreciate you being here. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here today. So I, I think that that many people know someone who is either in need of a kidney transplant because of kidney d- disease, and many people know someone who has already received a kidney transplant, but probably not that many people know a person who has received two organs. So Charlene, can you tell us what led to your husband needing his first kidney transplant? Sure. Um, in my husband's first transplant was in February of 1998. Um, he, two years prior to that, developed, um, uh, he has neurogenic bladder is what they call that. And so it's um, something that is related to spina bifida, which he was born with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he was... Um, when he was 30, he developed kidney disease, um, and um, that's what led to him um, needing a transplant. So how long was the time period between his first transplant and his second one? Over 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so the first one was in February 1998, and the second one was in March of 2019. So during that time the fir- with the first transplant, had he been enjoying good health? Absolutely. Um, most um, kidney transplants, actually, um, his length of time is um, really, really good. 20 yes, years. it is. I think most of them are mostly like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, he did. He was um, very active, healthy, and, and doing very well. His first transplant was from um, a deceased donor. Ah, okay. So the so his first transplant was from a deceased donor. What about the second one? Was it also? No, his second transplant was actually from his brother Daniel. Um, he was uh, he was his donor. So how how would you compare the two transplant experiences in terms of? you know, his recovery time or, or how he felt immediately following the surgery? Was there a difference? So um, I met my husband um, in September of 1998. So I was uh-huh. not with him during his transplant. I met him after his first transplant. Huh. Okay. And so I didn't go through the whole process the, the first time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he has said that this second time was... Um, seemed to be um his recovery time was a lot faster um and it seemed to go a lot smoother um but you know it it just it's a little bit different um 
I didn't experience the first part with him, so I don't know except for what he said. What was that process like, though? So for the second one, tell us, so tell us what happened that led up to him realizing that he was not well and was going to need to probably have some further medical treatment. He had several um, years where his he had problems with his kidney. He was in and out of the hospital a few times, um, you know, leading up to being put back on the transplant list in um, in July of 2015. Um, he was on, had um, high creatinine, um, bouts in the hospital where he was just sick, his kidney wasn't functioning properly, and he um, he would not go on dialysis, so his doctors wanted him to kind of go on dialysis, and when he was going through that process, I really didn't understand it, um, why he was refusing to go on dialysis so much, um, but he kind of pushed that out, but in, um, in July 2015, he went in the hospital, and he was in the hospital for about a week. And he was really, really sick. And it was at that point that the doctors told him, yeah, we can't push this out anymore. And he started dialysis that week. And so um, he started dialysis and then started the, um, the process for a workup for the transplant again in 2015. And so he was um, on the transplant list and doing dialysis um, until, um, well, he'd had dialysis at the hospital they let him go home and then um he did the workup did the transplant made it on the transplant list and then um he didn't do dialysis again he waited for probably it was another year um year and a half and then he went back on dialysis he was on dialysis um for quite a while um and he was just getting sicker and sicker, and it was very hard for me to watch. Um, of course. He just lost a lot of weight. He was just tired all the time, and he continued to work during this whole time. He did not mm. work. And so he um, he would work and then go to dialysis. And so it was during the process of being on dialysis and being so sick that I realized why he was pushing out the dialysis so much, because in my mind, I thought that dialysis um, you know, would make you feel better. But really, for kidney patients, um, a lot of them, it doesn't. It makes you feel so sick. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the medications and then just being dialyzed, um, being nauseous all the time, food not tasting well, he dropped a lot of weight, and, um, you know, it takes a lot out of you. And so um, he was just tired and, and just not feeling well for a long time. Um, and it's at that time that I was able to convince him to allow his brother. His brother had um, always said that he would want to do a workup to um, be a living donor for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But my husband, Mark, was not, um, he he did not want to do that. He felt like, um, you know, he had the first um, kidney from a, um, a deceased donor and that basically... He didn't want someone else to potentially shorten their own life for his own. Even though, you know, there's a lot of people that are born with one kidney. And, you know, and so it was getting past that, though, mentally. I think that, you know, he just felt like he didn't want someone to make that sacrifice for him. Hmm. But it wasn't until after he was just really, really sick that I um, convinced him to let his brother do the um, workup that 
you know, it didn't make sense to not move forward with that. But mm-hmm. as sick as he was, um, he'd been on the transplant list for almost four years again. And, um, you know, he he was getting sicker and sicker and weaker. And um, his brother wanted to do this for him. And his brother, you know, would be perfectly okay. You know, they wouldn't allow you to do a um, transplant if you weren't healthy enough mm-hmm. and able to do that. And so... He finally relented, and so in um, October of 2018, his brother came to Arkansas to do a, um, to do the workup. His brother lives in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. so he did a workup, and then we got the information back that he was not going to be able to be his donor. Oh, in Arkansas, and so. We were confused by this. We didn't know why. And um, the reason was because of um, the surgery um, and the anatomy of each of their kidneys. And so my husband has two, uh, one artery going um, through his kidney and his brother Daniel had two arteries mm-hmm. going through feeding the blood flow through his kidneys. And so because of that, um, they weren't comfortable at this transplant center in Arkansas being able to um, do the transplant. Mm. So I started reaching out and trying to look for shared donor lists and um, trying to get him on a shared donor where if mm-hmm. his brother's kidney couldn't work for him, maybe you know it could work for someone else. And so reached out. We had several. We I reached out to um, places in Memphis, Dallas, California. Um, just all over and so we had some appointments set up with them but they're long I mean it's six months out or something Mm. like that Um, but we were able to um, get an appointment with um, Mayo Clinic in Rochester Minnesota Mm -hmm. and so Mark went and had his workup and when he went and had a workup and again the hope was to be able to go to have um, a be on the donor registry and, and, you know, a shared donor program. And so when we went there and he did his workup, everything was fine. Um, we explained, we met with the surgeon and we explained with the sur- to the surgeon that we did have a donor. However, you know, they said he wasn't a match. And he said, you know, he asked the why he wasn't a match. And so when we talked to him about it, he said, let's get him up here and let's do a workup and let's see um, if there is a possibility that we can, you know, work with what what he has. And so mm-hmm. he did that. He went in January um, of 2019. He went to Mayo and did his workup. And they called a few weeks later and said that we're ready to go, that everything's okay. Um, the surgeons are um, confident that they can perform the surgery. It'll be um he's a match and let's move forward and so they tried to set it up for february of um of 2019 that it my work is really really busy and plus i knew it would be freezing cold and (laughs) deep up there and i was like okay i know we're all gung-ho we want to do this and i don't want you to have to do any more dialysis but Mm -hmm. can we push this out a few weeks Mm -hmm. so we actually we did and we went in march and so um we went up with um, my sister-in-law and 
went as Daniel's caregiver, um, which is Mark and Daniel's sister, Hazel, and then I went up and um, and we were there. We anticipated being there about six weeks and everything went so well that we were only there three weeks and we were Oh, home. excellent. Yeah, so it, it was a very good experience. In fact, we have to set up um, an, another appointment to go up to Mayo for his two-year um, checkup. So we're, we should have actually gone. It was actually um, this week. We should have gone this week was the transplant. But um, he, uh, we're going in April to go oh. up there for it. So. Oh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. You're going. So that, that is a wonderful way for you to celebrate National Donate Life Month in April. <laughs> um, so what was that? What was it like? So prior to him receiving the transplant. I mean, you, you talked about how sick he was and um, dropping weight, just, you know, not being well. Um, did he, I, I'm guessing he probably got to a point where he was unable to work or did he still continue? I know you said he was continuing to work, but did, did that ever change? So he worked, um, he would go to work um, Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays were his um dialysis days mm-hmm. he would go to work at seven he'd work seven to three on monday wednesdays and fridays and then he would leave there and go to dialysis and leave dialysis about seven thirty wow. or eight o'clock each night and so no he did not stop working and um, it was very difficult for me because um even though he was able to work i could still see how hard it was for him um and he was always so active on the weekends, mm-hmm. you know, doing different things around the house, being out in the yard, just um, he cannot sit still. And so on the weekends, yeah, he just basically slept yeah. the whole yeah. weekend away. He would not get out of bed. Um, and so it was very, very difficult. And um, you, you don't realize until you have someone that needs an organ donation or, or you know, medically that there's nothing that you can do to help them how hopeless you feel mm-hmm. and there are so many people out there i know that are just waiting and hoping and um to get the call or trying to find someone that can help them and you know the the sad part about it and the the startling thing is that um you know not everyone is able to get that call and so the fact that more than 20 people die um every day waiting for an organ donation is one of the reasons why i um started working with aurora and um telling my story is to try to get the word out there and if i can get one person to sign up to be an organ donor then you know maybe that can help save someone else's life and that's just it's it's very difficult um to watch your loved one be so sick and to be helpless, basically, and not being able to do anything. His brothers, um, when we had the um, consultation with the first transplant center where they said, you know, he can't be a donor, we went to lunch afterward and um, we were talking and um, I was researching and looking for things and um, he was, he told his brother, Daniel told Mark, he's like, I know she's not going to stop, so I think we're good. You know, no matter what, she's going to move forward. So, and it's kind of like that. And you, 
you think about pushing through and, and doing everything you can, reaching out. I mean, my goal was actually reaching out to different transplant centers that I know that there is a zone for each part of the United States. And mm-hmm. so I was going to try to get him on the list in each zone. Yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, reaching out to Memphis would have been a zone. Mayo would have taken us to Florida and Minnesota and Arizona and California. So that was my goal was to get on those lists. So that way we could try to match with someone else. But the fact that the surgeons were so skilled at Mayo that they were able to take Daniel's two arteries and turn them into one is how we were able to um, get the transplant. Yeah, that, that's such an incredible story, just, you know, personally and, and medically as well. And, you know, the fact that you were so persistent in seeking out other solutions um, once you realized it was not going to happen here, I assume that you were trying here in Arkansas. So the fact that you were, were so so persistent, um, supportive, and that is really important for any patient to have someone who's advocating for them. But um, the fact that you did that clearly made made a difference. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the key for anyone that is, um, you know, anyone that has a potential, some donor or, a, you know, living donor, and they're told no, depending on the no, it made it may take going somewhere else to find the right person or answer because, um, you know, that's the other hard thing about the transplant is that um, when you're going through the process, you know, the donor recipient and then the actual donor, you're not able to, sh- you're not able to talk to um, the doctors or anything. So we weren't able to be a part of that. Now, Daniel would come back and tell us, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, they, that's very strict and they keep that very segmented. And so that's, that's correct. Yeah. And so our biggest issue was not understanding the why, because Daniel was very fit. You know, he, um, he had, in fact, when he went to Mayo, they did some kind of study on him because of his low um, fat um, and high muscle mass. Or something wow. like that. And so, How nice for him. <laughs> yeah. But he started down that journey for his brother. Mm. So he wasn't always that fit. He started when Mark went on the um, dialysis, he started walking and doing push-ups and working out and he lost weight. He wanted to make sure that he was fit and he would be able to donate his kidney to his brother. That's a really incredible story about the connection. I mean, an example of their connection as brothers and that he wanted so much for this to be successful that he knew that he was willing to make sacrifices as well. Absolutely. Um, he, he's amazing. Um, he worked himself up to doing 500 push-ups a day. He still does it. That's super impressive. <laughs> I don't know anyone else who does 500 push-ups a day, so that is inspirational, aspirational. <laughs> so, Charlene, you work in research at UAMS. Do you think that your work in research has shaped your perspective on organ donation in any way? I think that it makes me um, more open-minded to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, working with research and seeing um, the differences um, it can make um, 
in, you know, someone else's lives, whether you're spearheading, you know, this the COVID vaccine that we're working on now mm-hmm. or um, a drug, a novel drug or something like that or, or drug addiction. I've, I've seen a lot of things um, in, in that arena that um, I think it makes me open to that mm-hmm. and not afraid of um, medical or research kind of things. I think that um, a lot of people probably um, aren't as open to that because um, of it just having to do with medicine or medical or, or, you know, an operation, something like that. Do you think that your um, exposure to that kind of work also helped you to be able to make decisions about reaching out to other medical facilities? Do you think that was a factor as well? So I don't know if it it really had to do with research, maybe um, with my um, working at a you know, a medical center, a hospital, yes, knowing that, um, yeah, probably a lot of it's more my personality and not taking no for answer, um, and knowing that there are other, there, there's got to be some option or there has to be some kind of way, um, I think that, that maybe played a part in it, and, um, you know, I think my actual, um, affiliation with Aurora and all the information that I learned from Aurora and being a part of UNOS as a UNOS ambassador mm-hmm. helped me to know um, that I needed to, you know, try to reach out, that there were paired donors um, lists and that's not something that this um, transplant center offered at the time. Mm-hmm. It does now. Um, and so... I think that that probably helped me a lot is, um, you know, just trying to get out there and um, navigate. And that, I think, is intimidating for a lot of people, Mm. Um, being able to navigate the system and go through all the things that you have to to do. I mean, insurance wise and all of those kind of things. Right. There's there are multiple layers to to the process. So um, congratulations, though, on you being able to navigate it. And, and how, how is your husband? How would you describe his health today? Oh, he is wonderful. He's doing really, really well. Um, I, I, his health is so much better. Even, um, you know, from his first kidney, his cadaver kidney, um, I think his creatinine level was never below two. Mm-hmm. And now his creatinine is is normal it's normal and so for him to have a normal creatinine level that's just amazing yes that's huge well that that's fantastic we are so happy that his health has been restored um, through the very generous gift of his brother and previously um, from the other donor Um, so we just appreciate so much for you to been here today to share this story, Charlene. Thank you for having me. Um, I I love to talk about it. Um, and like I said, if there's anyone that you know hears my story and decides that they will um, become an organ donor because of it, um, it's you know that's that's why I do it. It's worth it. I have no doubt that you've inspired someone to register. And so, again, we thank you so much. But I, I, one thing before we go, though, Charlene, can you just once more tell us why you believe registering to become an organ tissue and eye donor is important? So I think it's important for the, everyone that is out there waiting for an organ, um, that 
fact that we lose over 20 people a day that are waiting on organ donation lists, if we Mm -hmm. had more people that were organ donors, um, that we could eliminate a lot of those deaths. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand um, how only 1% of um, the population is able to be an organ donor because of their manner of death. Yes, you're right about that. Right. So they think, oh, well, someone else is already, you know, there's enough people, but they're not enough. We don't no. have enough people um, to take care of the needs. And and I think one of the big things that I think about are, are not just the adults, but all the children. So there are so many children on the list waiting Um you know, as well as adults. Correct, yes. When you think about 20 family members, somebody, 20 people dying a day, and you think about their family members, that, you know, there could be from 300 to 500 people impacted a day just Mm. from their family, um, from someone that loses their life. Um, And I think, you know, when you look at it that way and look at the numbers, that it becomes more real to people. So, you know, I, I just kind of have to equate it with that. Um, that's that's why I do this. If, you know, we, we need changes. I think I was really inspired by um, the governor of Arkansas, um, you know, allowing the donations to go up in libraries and mm-hmm. different places where people can register. Yes. Um, You're refer- referring to our swipe kiosks. Yes, that's true. And so I think that Arkansas has a higher um, rate of organ donation um, people that are actually signed up than some other neighboring states. But that's true. Um, you know, we need to continue to to try to emphasize that for all the people that are coming of age. So you know, the more that we talk and the more that we can um, discuss it, and you know, let those that are you know turning. 16 and 18 that are getting their driver's license and the importance of it, then um, maybe one day um, we can, um, you know, lower the numbers and not have so many people die just hoping that they're going to get the call and that, you know, they're going to be able to um, continue to live their life and and have a a second chance like, like my husband Mark did. Charlene Rains, thank you so much for being here, sharing your story and Mark's story. And we're so happy that his health has improved and that he's doing well. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yes, we're, we're so thankful. And thank you, our listening audience for being with us today. If you have any questions for us, please call 501-907-9150. And if you're ready to make a life-restoring decision and register to become an organ, tissue, and eye donor, go to DonateLifeArkansas.org. Radiate is a production of Aurora and is hosted by Audrey Coleman, Aurora's Director of Communications. 